children of Israel out of Egypt, and then also uh, they're familiar with you know the plagues coming down upon Egypt, and then the children of Israel leading leaving Egypt, and then out into the wilderness, the crossing of the Red Sea, and then to the mountain of God, where they received the Ten Commandments. But that pretty much stops there for a lot of Christians. And then after that, what we're going to see is we're going to see that Moses is going to be instructed to build a tabernacle. And we're going to see the priestly garments and all this. And as we go through those chapters, we're going to see that the tabernacle speaks of Jesus. It would be John in his gospel said that the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. And as we go through the tabernacle, we're going to see that it, it points to, it, it speaks of Jesus Christ. Just as those furnishings does, for example, the seven branch menorah that they would light would represent that the nation was to be a light to the other nations, but it also speaks of Jesus being the light of the world. So those are the, 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 the um, uh, uh, things that we're going to be looking at and studying as we go through this wonderful book, Leviticus. I don't know how anybody could say that it, it's something that isn't relevant for us here today. Because as we go through the book of, of Leviticus, what we're going to see that it speaks of how we are to, well, the priests were to serve and obey and worship a holy God as instruction is given to them. And as we go through it, we're going to see how we can worship and obey and serve a holy God. So there is so much that is in the book of Leviticus that is a blessing for us to look at that I think that, um, that we miss out when we ignore those portions of scriptures. Number talks about how you know, the camp was set up, different things, uh, how the priests, the specific families, what their duties was, showing us that God is a God of order, and then Deuteronomy is going to repeat a lot of the law. But even though we're not under the law, we can make principles and see the truths that are going to bless you and me. So I want to encourage you to come on out. You recall that as we went through the book of Revelation, that there were over 200 scripture references to the Old Testament there in the book of Revelation. And sometimes people say, well, I read the book of Revelation, but I don't understand the book of Revelation. And if you were with us in our study of the book of Revelation, it wasn't that difficult to understand, was it? It's a fairly simple book to go through it as you look at that divine outline given to us in chapter 1. But then also as we look at the symbolism and stuff, we can relate to it and we can make reference points to the Old Testament scriptures. So if you're one that is familiar with the Old Testament, then the book of Revelation wasn't difficult. We started on Sunday morning the, the Gospel of Matthew. I invite you to come out on Sunday mornings as we journey through Matthew. We did chapter 1. And you recall it on Sunday, if you were here, that I told you that the emphasis of Matthew to the, the, when he wrote it was to the Jewish reader. And so the Jewish reader would be familiar with the Old Testament Scripture. So a lot of what we're going to read about when we go through Matthew's Gospel is the phrase, thus Jesus fulfilled what was written of the Old Testament prophet. And he's going to quote from Jeremiah, Hosea, Isaiah, um, all these Old Testament prophets that are going to be, uh, you know, referenced as it's pointing to the fact that Jesus Christ came along and fulfilled those Old Testament prophecies concerning the coming of Messiah. And so what I'm saying simply is that as we are students of the Old Testament scriptures and as we study the whole canon of scripture, that what it's going to do, it's going to help you in growing in the Lord. It's going to help you in your knowledge of Jesus Christ. And as you grow in the Lord and the knowledge of Jesus Christ, what that's going to do is help you grow in your love for him. And what we're going to see is the grace and the goodness and, and the wonderful promises of God as we go through the Old Testament scriptures. So come out and join us on Wednesday nights as we are indeed in the Old Testament scriptures. So it's good to see all of you here tonight. So we do want to study Exodus Exodus, of course, means exit or departure. And the book of Exodus is really just a continuation of the book of Genesis. So I just want to do a real quick review of where we were at in Genesis. And then we'll start in the book of Exodus. But you recall in Genesis chapter 12, and it's good to have this, this basic understanding of Genesis as we go into here the book of Exodus, um, what is going on, and to have that background. But in uh, the book of Genesis, you recall in chapter 12, that it was God that came to Abraham and said, Abraham, you and Sarah leave your father's house, and I want you to go to the land that I'm going to show you, and I'm going to give you that land. I'm going to make a great nation out of you. And so we saw that Abraham and Sarah would leave at that time. They didn't have any children. The promise was given that those who bless you will be uh, blessed, and, and I'll bless, curse those, that is, that will curse you. And so Abraham believed God in Genesis chapter 15, and it was counted to him 
for righteousness. And so God would reiterate that promise to Abraham, even though Abraham had to wait for that promise to have a son. And so we see that finally Isaac was born when Abraham was 100 years old. And so the covenant would go and uh, be reiterated to Isaac as that covenant that, that you're going to be a great nation, that all this land that I'm showing to you, Isaac, that I showed to your father Abraham is going to be yours and your descendants. And so Isaac, he would marry Rebekah, and of course uh, they would have twins, Esau and Jacob. Esau was the older, but would end up serving the younger as prophesied by the Lord. And so Jacob, the promise and the covenant would go through Jacob, and Jacob would leave Canaan as he was running from his brother Esau, who was very angry at him because it was Jacob that received the blessing. And so Jacob would run to Pandanaran, about 400 miles to the east of Canaan, and there he lived with his uncle Laban and worked for him for about 20 years. And as he was there in Pandanaran working for Laban, he would end up marrying Leah, he would end up marrying Rachel, he would begin to have sons, and his sons, he had 12 sons, who would be the patriarchs of the 12 tribes of Israel. And so when Abraham was told that promise there in, in um, chapter 12, God even told Abraham in chapter 15 that, Abraham, know that as you look up to the stars and see the stars there, that's going to be the number of your descendants. And know that your descendants are going to be strangers in a land that are not theirs and will serve them and will be afflicted for 400 years. And God told Abraham that in the fourth generation you shall return back to the land, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. And so when Jacob, he has his 12 sons, and of course his favorite son, as the nation begins to, to be growing, and, and it's through Jacob and, and his sons that the nation is going to become a great nation. And so Jacob, he has a favorite son, Joseph, and much of the end of the book of Genesis, those last chapters, they're dealing with the life of Joseph. And Joseph received that coat of many colors from his father Jacob, but Joseph's brothers were very jealous and envious of him and hated him, so they threw him into a pit. And so they sold him off into slavery into Egypt. And that's how Joseph ended up in Egypt. And he ended up in the house of Potiphar. Potiphar was one of the captains in Pharaoh's courtyard. And so God was blessing Joseph, but Joseph would go through very difficult times. And so it was told to Jacob, his father, by his brothers, hey, you know what, Joseph is dead. A wild animal is eating him. He's no longer around. And so Jacob would grieve for many years, thinking that his son Joseph was dead. But God was working. And so Joseph ended up in prison in Egypt for about 12 years. And it would be finally at that time, Pharaoh has a dream. And he calls his magicians and his astrologers and his wise men to interpret this dream. We're going to talk a little bit more about in ancient times about the wise men because as we go into chapter 2 of Matthew, we're going to see the story of the what magi coming from the east. And so we're going to talk about who they were and exactly what it was that they did uh, in ancient times. And, and so uh, we see that Egypt were ones that had wise men and they couldn't interpret the dream for Pharaoh. And finally somebody said, you know what, there's a, a man, a Hebrew man, Joseph, and he's down in prison, and we are told, and we know that he can interpret dreams. So they cleaned up Joseph, and they brought him up, and he's standing before Pharaoh. And Joseph says, God will interpret the dream. And Pharaoh told him the dream, and, and to, to kind of summarize it, what Joseph said is, the dream is telling you, Pharaoh, that you're going to have seven years of good crops and, and good times, but then famine's going to come into the land for another seven years after that. And it's going to be a very severe famine. And so what you need to do is you need to find somebody who's wise that will be administrating in those seven years of good and plenty to store up grain so the nation doesn't become lost during those years of famine. And so Pharaoh said, you're the man that's going to do it because Pharaoh recognized that the spirit of God was on Joseph, an excellent spirit, a spirit of wisdom that was there that no one else in Egypt had. And so Joseph at that moment became the prime minister of Egypt. Well, as the famine would go on after the seven years of, of good crops and storing up those crops, it would be Jacob and his brothers there in Canaan. They had heard of a man, they didn't know it was Joseph, that was in Egypt that was able to give grain away. And so it was Jacob that said, listen, we're all going to die. So you guys, and he said to his sons, you need to go 
and you need to go and see this man and get grain. And so that's what they did. And after through a series of events, we see that Joseph finally revealed himself to his brothers. He would, re, you know, the word would get back to Jacob, that Jacob, your son Joseph, is alive, that he's the prime minister of Egypt. And it would be Joseph that said to his brothers, go and get dad, go get the whole family and bring them to Egypt, lest you guys die in this famine. So that's what Jacob did. And in chapter 46 of Genesis, Jacob was, was afraid to go to Egypt. But God told Jacob, don't be afraid. Go ahead and go to Egypt. I'll be with you. I'm going to make a great nation there f- and, and while you're there. And, um, and I'm going to bring you up again. So Abraham and Jacob were told that they were going to go into Egypt and that they would be there for a certain amount of time. We know that Abraham was told 400 years and then that they were going to come back into the promised land. And so that's what we see as there is a gap now as Genesis ends with Jacob blessing his sons and prophesying over them. And then he would die. And then we see that Joseph, after that, the death of Joseph, and that ends the book of Genesis. So between chapter 50 of Genesis and chapter 1 of the book of Exodus, there's a time frame of about 300 years, 280 and 300 years. We know that the children of Israel were in the land for 400 years. Matter of fact, we're going to see that it's going to be told to us when they leave Egypt that it was a totality of 430 years. But you've got to remember that Genesis ends with them being in the land for a certain amount of time. It was Jacob that was 130 years old when he came into Egypt and he talked to Pharaoh. Pharaoh found great favor with Joseph and uh, blessed uh, Joseph's family and Jacob, gave him the best of the land, Gershon there that was very fertile. The Egyptians didn't like, you know, uh, herding sheep and, and working with, uh, you know, cattle and things like that. And so the children of Israel, or Jacob, that is, um, and his family, they, they had large herds, brought their herds in, also took care of Pharaoh's herds. So they were blessed for a while. But now there's a time gap. There's a time gap of close to 300 years between Genesis and the book of Exodus. And you've got to remember that when Moses would lead the children of Israel out of Egypt, that he's 80 years old. We're going to see that Moses' life is easily divided up into four 40-year periods. He lived to be 120 years. His first 40 years, we're going to read about even tonight um, as we go into chapter 2 that the first 40 years he's going to spend in in Pharaoh's courtyard, being raised as an Egyptian. The next 40 years, in chapter 2, verse 11, through the end of the chapter, what we see is the next 40 years where he's going to flee out into Midian, and he's going to be herding sheep out there uh, in the backside of the desert for the next 40 years. It would be when Moses was 80 years old that that's where he was called in chapter 3 to the burning bush. And so the next 40 years, he's going to be ministering to the children of Israel. So that's kind of a background, what we see as we get into the book of Exodus that leads us there. Now, the first five books of the Bible were penned by Moses. He was the human instrument that wrote these books. There's hundreds of pages of debate whether Moses really wrote this book or not. Jesus in the gospel makes reference to Moses writing the book of Exodus. So that's good enough for me, okay? Because Jesus is more of an expert, a whole lot smarter than any scholar that I've ever read about that wants to question the inspiration and the, uh, of the scriptures and, and all of this. Jesus would quote from uh, the book of Exodus. He would say that it was written by Moses. And so Jesus put his stamp of approval. And that's the thing to remember. There are those so-called scholars that will come along and question the Old Testament scriptures. They'll question the book of Genesis. And oftentimes you can see where Jesus or Paul the Apostle make references to those portions of scriptures in Genesis. Jesus made reference back to Genesis chapter 2. You recall that it was the religious leaders that came to Jesus and said, asked them questions about divorce and, and, and marriage. And Jesus said, have you not read? And you know, that really got under the skin of the religious leaders. You know, have you not read? Of course they read. They were experts in the scripture. But Jesus was saying you should know the scriptures and apply it to, you know, to your lives. But have you not read that a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife and the two shall become one flesh? He's quoting from where? Genesis chapter 2. So Jesus puts his stamp of approval on the Garden of Eden and, and Adam and Eve being real humans that were in the garden that came together in the first marriage. 
And so we see Jesus would also give his stamp of approval uh, on Jonah that was swallowed by a large fish as we read that book in the Old Testament. And of course, there's all kinds of debate among liberal scholars whether that really happened or it's just kind of a story to give us a lesson and allegory and all of this. Jesus said that, you know what, no sign's going to be given to you, religious leaders, except for the sign of Jonah. And so he says, just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a large fish, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. So Jesus believed it. He spoke about Daniel, many of the Old Testament prophets that Jesus and and Paul and the apostles would speak about. So the first five books written by Moses. So let's begin to look at the book of Exodus as we read. Now these are the names of the children of Israel who came to Egypt. Each man in his household came with Jacob, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah. Verse 3, Issachar, Zebulon, and Benjamin, Dan, Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. All those who were descendants of Jacob were 70 persons, for Joseph was in Egypt already. And then verse 6, and Joseph died and all his brothers and all that generation. And so again, that time frame, about 280 years, 300 years between the end of Genesis to chapter 1 here of the book of Exodus. Obviously, Jacob has died as we saw at the end of Genesis Joseph would die. Joseph would see up to his third generation of children, as Genesis tells us there in chapter 50. And so now we see that Jacob's sons have died. All that generation is gone. Also, the Pharaoh who saw favor with Jacob and and, uh, Joseph and his family and the 70 that came in and gave him the best of the land, obviously he's gone and there's been new Pharaohs that have come on the scene. And so now we see about this new Pharaoh that is on the scene as we read uh, further. But in verse 7, the children of Israel were fruitful and increased abundantly, um, multiplied and grew exceedingly mightily, and the land was filled with them. So we see that during this time that the children of Israel are going from 70 and they're growing into a great nation just as God told Abraham that that would happen. And so they're multiplying here. When we get to Exodus chapter 12, verse 37, it's going to be told to us when they're getting ready to leave Egypt that there are 600,000 males above the age of 20 years. And so you can look at it, and that's why you hear numbers being thrown around by Bible teachers and scholars that there was probably between 2 and 3 million Jews that would leave Egypt and go out into the wilderness. I mean, that's a lot of people that take on a 40-year hike, isn't it? But there's a conservative estimate of 2 million people that I think, because if you have 600,000 males over the age of 20, then you can say, and, and you, know, you come up with the you know, general you know, population increase and population rates, and, and if there's 600,000 males, then there's probably 600,000 females, 50% of the population, that's 1.2 million. And then if you have a conservative estimate of those who were married and had children, then you easily get 3 million. I think that 3 million is a conservative estimate. And the reason that I say that is look at verse 7. It's like the Lord is telling us something. The children of Israel were fruitful, number one, increased abundantly, number two, multiplied, number three, and then fourthly, grew exceedingly mighty. So don't you think that the Lord is trying to tell us something here? that it was more than just a normal population growth that was going on here. God was blessing. And there, there were kids being born everywhere. So I think that probably the number of children that, that, that the, the, the households were having were more than average or two or three. I think that, that probably there was more. So a good conservative estimate is two and a half, three, three and a half million people in totality and a lot of kids that would end up leaving. And we're going to see that they're going to continue to multiply up until the time that Moses comes to them. And so we see that God's hand is on them. They're becoming a great nation. And so Pharaoh, he sees this, and what does he think? Well, verse 8, Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And so this new Pharaoh that's looking out, and he's seeing the children of Israel population exploding, their kids everywhere, he's, he's looking. He doesn't know Joseph. Now it isn't that he doesn't know about Joseph. Of course he knew about Joseph. He didn't have any historical bound, bond to Joseph, that is. He didn't have any appreciation to Joseph, what he did for the nation a couple hundred years before, and really saving the nation and bringing the nation 
uh, the empire through the most difficult time that they went through those years of famine. He said, you know, Joseph, that was a few hundred years ago. I got a problem on my hands, and that is the children of Israel are multiplying. So he comes up with some plans. And so what he does in verse 9 is he said to the people, look, the people of the children of Israel are more and mightier than we. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And it happened that in the event of war that they also join our enemies and fight against us, and so go up out of the land. And so he looks out, he sees that, man, there's a couple million of the children of Israel. What are we going to do? Because, you see, that can be a threat to us, is what Pharaoh's thinking. Egypt at this time historically was at the height of her glory and power and prosperity and riches. It was a very, very wealthy empire at this time. The, the riches of Egypt, if you're one that's an expert in Egyptian history, you know that at this time here, which is um, about 1500 B.C., that it would be uh, that time where there was gold, there was riches, um, um, just the glamour of Egypt was at its height and at its power here. And that meant that there was others that would become enemies of Egypt to try to take Egypt, try to overthrow Egypt, even though they were the powerhouse of the known world at this time. About this time, a little bit later on, we know that Ethiopia launched a huge attack against Egypt and, and really began to go into Egypt and almost overthrew Egypt at this time. But we'll talk a little bit more about that in a little bit, what happened and what they believe, or that is what is written by Josephus, the Jewish historian. But anyway, so Egypt had to be careful. The pharaoh's looking and he's saying, if an enemy attacks, these two million people or whoever, or all these males can join in with their enemies and help to overthrow us. Plus, they're thinking if they keep multiplying, they themselves could overthrow us. So we've got to do something about this population growth, and so that's where he comes up with the plan. So his first plan, verse 11, is therefore they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with their burdens, and they built for Pharaoh supply cities, Pentham, and Ramses. But the more they afflicted them, the more they multiplied and grew, and they were in dread of the children of Israel. And so the Egyptians made the children of Israel serve with rigor. And so what they did was, as, as Pharaoh said, this is what we're going to do. We're going to come up with this huge slave labor. We're going to make them slaves, and we're going to use those slaves for our benefit. What they're going to do is they're going to work on our projects. First of all, is what they're going to do is they're going to work in strengthening the supply cities. And those supply cities were just simply cities that were for military purposes. So here are the children of Israel, and they're being afflicted. They're under the taskmaster of the Egyptian who has his whip out there. And it's Pharaoh that's thinking, if we work these guys to death, some of them are going to die out there in a the hot, blistering sun, baking bricks. They're not going to have time to, you know, uh, to, you know, be doing things to where there's a population growth. Matter of fact, we should, you know, we'll see it stop because we're just going to work them to death is what we're going to do. We're going to use them as slaves. And so that's what they did. And so there is the monuments that they would work on in Ramses, if you go and see the, the ruins of Ramses. Now the question sometimes is asked, were the children of Israel used at this time to build the pyramids? And if you look at the datings of the pyramids, it seems as though the pyramids were built before this time. So probably they weren't involved in the pyramids, but they were involved in building up the cities, supply cities, the military cities, the, the outposts. Uh, they were involved in, in building cities for Egypt and for the, some of the monuments that you see even today in Ramses that they were working on. And so here's this labor force and this, this slavery that they come up with thinking that, well, that'll curve off the, the population supply. But verse 12, the more they afflicted them, the more they multiply and grew again, and they were in dread of the children of Israel. And so the Egyptians made the children of Israel serve with rigor in verse 14, and they made their lives bitter with hard bondage and mortar and brick and all manner of service in the field. All their service in which they made them serve was with vigor. And so it wasn't a good time. It was a very difficult time. It was a very uh, much uh, affliction that was going on here. And one of the things as we go through the book of Exodus that you're going to hear me make reference to is that as we look at Egypt, Egypt is going to be a type of the world. And as we talk about this Pharaoh here, who we're going to see 
doesn't have any value for human life, is coming against God's people, he really is going to be a type of the enemy, a type of Satan is what he's going to be. And one of the things to remember that, that what the enemy wants to do is he wants to hold the world in bondage. And those who are in the world and who have a love for the world are going to find themselves in being in bondage. He wants to afflict. He wants to hold people in bondage to sin. He wants to afflict them with, with all kinds of despair and depression and hopelessness. That's the work of the enemy. And that's what the world has to offer. And what we're going to see here in the book of Exodus is a story of redemption as they're brought out of Egypt and they go into the wilderness wondering. And, and God wanted them to go right into the land, the promised land, and give them the land. But because of their unbelief and because of their disobedience, we're going to see that they're going to be hiking around that mountain for 40 years, the mountain of God. And then finally, Joshua, they, the book of Joshua, they go into the promised land. But there are so many lessons in here, and they're going to be saying, we want to go back to the world. Lessons for you and for me as Christians. Because the Lord has delivered us from the world, hasn't he? We're no longer in bondage to sin and to the enemy. We're free from the penalty of sin and from the power of sin in our lives. But what can happen so often times when you know, we find ourselves in dry times and difficult times and hot times and deserty times is we want to go back to Egypt, just as they were saying. They would cry, we want to go back to Egypt. We want to go back and, and, and be back in bondage is what you want. And they were having a hard time out there in the wilderness. It was hard and they were eating manna and all of this. But they had forgotten about what it was like to be in bondage. And so those are very important lessons that you and I need to keep in the back of our mind as we go through the book of Exodus. Because sometimes Christians want to go back to the world, to the old hangout and the old habits and get involved in the old sins. And the thing to remember is Satan wants to afflict you. He wants to bring you into bondage. He wants to bring you down. He wants to make it very hard. Satan is not a good taskmaster. So I want us to remember that as we go through this. That it's the Lord that wants to free us. He wants us to have that life and experience that life abundantly. That abundant life that he has for you and for me. But what happens is oftentimes we don't because of disobedience or unbelief. We end up in a wilderness experience or wanting to go back to Egypt. So it's very important to remember these points. But here we see that as they're being afflicted, they continue to grow. And um, they continue to multiply and grow, verse 12. And the thing about what it reminds me of is that Satan has afflicted the church, hasn't he? And every time that he's brought persecution, the church has grown. And the church is strengthened. We talked about this as we have been in the epistles and also as we studied the book of Revelation. It was Paul that was writing during that time that Caesar Nero was, you know, the emperor of Rome. And he brought heavy persecution against the Christians there in the first century. And then after him, it would be Domitian at the time that John is writing the book of Revelation. Christians being persecuted very heavily. Matter of fact, in the first three centuries of the church, it is believed that over six million Christians were martyred for the faith and trust in Jesus Christ. But the church grew. And the church grew through that persecution, and the church got stronger. And the thing is, even today, Satan in parts of the world is afflicting the Christians, and he's persecuting the Christians and coming against the Christians. But in those parts of the world where you see that, where you go in parts of of Asia and parts of China and Africa, you see that where the Christians are being afflicted, that they're growing not only numerically, but they're growing spiritually. And it's absolutely amazing to see it. And and the depth of maturity and devotion to God is, is something that's a real testimony, even though they go through persecution in China. I talked to my good friend, Dr. Song, who has ministered in China and setting up hospitals, and he's met with the underground church and he tells me about how he meets with them, how, how there's all these little home fellowships in, all throughout China. There are millions of home fellowships in China where people will meet, and they, they meet in homes, and they meet in different places, maybe 10 people, a dozen people. And they love the Lord, and they, they, they just desire to be taught the Word of God. There's such a hunger for it. And so we see that taking place. Now, you'll see this summer in the Olympics, you'll see China will put on probably a good face and they'll show the state-run church and see we have, 
you know, religion here and we have Christianity here and people can worship here. But the thing is, the true Christians are underground and they're in these little homes. You see it in the Middle East. You see Christians in Iran and Iraq and you see them in Saudi Arabia and other Muslim countries that they're heavily persecuted. And so they're meeting in small groups and homes. But yet, there's a revival that's going on in those places if you talk to certain missionary groups. If you go to Africa, one of the things that I ask that you pray about that, that I've been talking and, and uh, there's talk of me going back to Sudan again for a couple weeks to, to teach the chaplains. And that's something that very much is on my heart. So, you know, I'm looking at maybe perhaps going back for a couple weeks later on in the fall or the beginning of next year. We're just kind of waiting on the Lord for that to happen. But you see, you guys, you get to hear me all year long. And I pray that you would just you know, supporting me being gone for two weeks to go and teach those chaplains there in southern Sudan that are going to go out and risk their lives and go out and minister and how they desperately want somebody to come and teach them the scriptures. That's why they like Calvary Chapel pastors because they can teach them chapter by chapter and verse by verse through different books and we teach all day long. But in Sudan, the Christians growing and meeting in caves and little huts. And I remember being in a little hut there in, in Nimali, Sudan. And, and the women had built it because the men were off the war. And just the, the, the worship and, and the devotion to God and their love for him was absolutely amazing. They didn't have anything. They had a lot of persecution, though. So where you see that the church is persecuted, there can be growth and there's strength in the church. And I want to encourage you here tonight that as we are in the world, you know, we're not in bondage to the world. We're not of the world, but we're in the world. And as you make a devotion to God and, and as people know the reality of Jesus in your life and, and you give the testimony of Jesus Christ, in your life, in your witness, in the way that you live your life, you're going to experience some kind of persecution because the world isn't going to applaud you and the people at work aren't always going to be nice to you. But the thing is, it's an opportunity for you to grow and be strengthened and continue to grow in your devotion and love for the Lord because the Lord's going to bless you. And we're going to talk a little bit about this on Sunday as we're going to see as the Christ child was born, that there was peace, a message of peace, and there's a message of joy that will be to all peoples, is what the angel said. But then we're going to see the other side of the coin where a decree went out to kill all the male children two years and under in Bethlehem. There was sorrow and there was sadness and there was weeping. And I'll tell you what, there can be sadness and sorrow and weeping sometimes as a Christian because the world comes against us or families are divided or, or whatever it might be. But the thing is, the Lord desires to bring peace and freedom and joy and strength to you and comfort to you as you stay committed to him. And so we see here that even though they were being persecuted, they would continue to just trust God and they continue to, to um, their devotion to the Lord. So we read in verse 15, Then the king of Egypt spoke to the Hebrew wives, of whom the name of one was Sephora, and the name of the other, Pua, and he said, When you do the duty of the midwife for the Hebrew women and see them on their birth stools, if it is a son, then you shall kill him, but if it's a daughter, then he, she shall live. Verse 17, But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but saved the male children alive. So the midwives here, Pharaoh comes up with plan number two. You know, afflicting them and working them to death isn't working. So what we're going to do is we're going to call the midwives and he calls two of them here. Now, these aren't the only two here as they are named here in the text that are midwives amongst the Hebrew women. There are probably hundreds, thousands of midwives that are helping the women as they're delivering. But we see that somehow they're the leaders. And so they're summons to stand before the most powerful man here on the face of the earth. And this is what he says. He says, this is what you guys do, midwives. When you deliver a child, if it's a male, go ahead and kill it. If it's female, she can live. And, of course, that's going to stop the population growth for future generations as well. And so these midwives here, because they feared God, they weren't going to do that. And so we read in verse 18, So the king of Egypt called their midwives and said to them, Why have you done this thing and saved the male children alive? And so they weren't doing that. 
because they feared God. A command was given by Pharaoh, this is what you do, but they were ones that respected life, and they were ones that feared God, and they said, we're not going to do this thing. And they could have got in big trouble. They could have been executed in five minutes if Pharaoh wanted to do that. But they're going to stand for the Lord. Doesn't it remind you of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in Daniel chapter 3? That they would stand again before the most powerful man on the face of the earth, Nebuchadnezzar, who said that you're going to bow down to the image that I made or you're going in the burning, fiery furnace. And they said, no, we're not going to do that. We fear God. We worship only him. We're not going to bow down to your statue, Nebuchadnezzar. And we're not going to worship it. We worship only the true and the living God. So in the furnace they went, and God preserved them. And God here is protecting these women. And the thing is, in the day in which we live, we need to be Christians that we're going to fear God over fearing man. It would be the, the apostles that stood before the religious leaders. They're in Jerusalem in Acts chapter 4. And the religious leaders said, you guys quit speaking the name of Jesus. You filled Jerusalem with your doctrine, with the gospel. And so what they were told is, we forbid you to speak the name of Jesus. And they said, no, we're not going to do that. If we're going to obey God or obey you, we're going to obey O God. And so they obeyed God and they went out preaching the name of Jesus. And they were persecuted for that. And so Paul comes along when he was writing to the Galatian churches. He said, do I fear man over God? He said, no. He said, if I have a fear of, of man over God, then I can't be a servant of the Lord. And it is true with you and me. In this day, if you want to truly be used of the Lord, and if you're going to walk in obedience to the Lord and have devotion, then you need to fear him over fearing man. And that means that those of us who, all of us, end up in a place of, of being in submission to somebody, when it comes to the family, and we talked about this in Ephesians. Wives, be submissive as to your own husbands, as to the Lord is the qualifier. Children, obey your parents as in the Lord or to the Lord. That's the qualifier. And then employees, or you know, you're to obey your master, your bosses, as Paul was talking about those relationships as he began that section in, in submitting to one another in the fear of God. The qualifier is as unto the Lord. So in that position where somebody comes along and wants you to do sin or, or to commit sin or something immoral, we have the authority of the Word of God. And we obey God and we fear God. And so you may have a boss. You may have you know, somebody uh, you know, else that has influence in your life. And, and they may cause you to want to compromise the ways and the things of God. But the thing is, you and I have the authority of God's word, and we have God that we fear, and we walk with him, and we're devoted to him. And that's what these midwives said. We fear God, and we're going to be used uh, and, and fear him, and we're not going to do this thing. And so verse 19, the midwife said to Pharaoh, as he's saying, why aren't you doing this? Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are lively and give birth before the midwives come to them. And so we see here, uh, they said, um, you know what, they're delivering before we can get to them. Now, some say, are they lying here? And I've even heard one person use it as a text for a lesson that it's okay to lie at certain times. <laughs> They're not necessarily lying here. It could be that, you know what, that's what was happening. That God said, you know what, these women are going to start delivering these babies before those midwives get there. It could be the midwives are dragging their feet a little bit to get there. But there's nothing in the text that suggests that they were outright lying here. And so we see that verse 20, Therefore God dwelt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very mightily. And so it was because the midwives feared God that he provided households for them. And so Pharaoh commanded all his people, saying, Every son who is born you shall cast into the river, and every daughter you shall save alive. And so he blessed the midwives. Now being a midwife back at this time, that was a very prestigious, esteemed position to be in. Usually uh, it was a midwife that's somebody who couldn't have children. And so the Lord blessed them with household. Don't believe the prosperity teacher that will take this text and say, you see, these midwives all of a sudden have big homes and mansions that they lived in and all of this. It's not what's being spoken of here. What's being spoken of is they begin to have children. And God was blessing them with children. And so the children of Israel continue to grow. And so plan three in verse 22 here, we see that um, it is 
uh, Pharaoh that says, okay, anybody, if you see a male child of the children of Israel, throw them in the river. Toss them in the river and drown them. I do find it intriguing that Pharaoh is trying to destroy the Hebrew boys by drowning them in the water, in the river, in the Nile River. Because I think God remembers that. Because he's going to destroy the Egyptian males and soldiers by water, isn't he? In the Red Sea. Chapter 2. And a man of the house of Levi went and took as wife and daughter of Levi. So the woman conceived and bore a son. And when she saw that he was a beautiful child, she hid him three months. We know that Moses' parents, Amram and uh, Jochebed, we learned that from Exodus chapter 6. From the tribe of Levi, Moses would have an older brother. It would be Aaron. He was three years older than Moses. We know that from Exodus chapter 7, verse 7. Moses also had an older sister. She was the, the eldest of the siblings because we're going to see her on the banks of the Nile River here looking to see what's going to happen to baby Moses as he's going to float down the river in the ark. And so here is Amram and Jochebed, and, and they have Moses. It says here that when she saw that he was a beautiful child, Moses is writing this. I mean, what's he going to put, that he was an ugly child? So <laughs> he's a beautiful child. Actually, in Acts chapter 7, verse 20, Stephen, given of this account, said that Moses was not an ordinary child. But I don't think that Moses puts this in here because he says, well, of course I was a beautiful child. I think that he was putting this in here. And Moses was called the meekest man on the face of the earth. He was very humble. But he has given us a perspective, a God's perspective, which is a whole lot different than Pharaoh's perspective. Pharaoh's perspective is I don't care about these kids. I want them drowned. I only care about me and what's going to happen to me. God saw this child as very beautiful, and I think all the children that were being born, he saw them as very, very beautiful. And I want to remind you, that's the way he sees your children. And I want to remind us here at Calvary Chapel that the way that the world sees children and sees people is going to be a whole lot different than the way that we should see them. And I want to remind you that those kids that are back there that that I get privileged to spend time and do in worship once in a while with, they're very beautiful and very precious in the Lord's sight. And the children that come here, we have opportunity to minister to them very important things. The truth and the love of Jesus Christ. You see, there's two things that we can give the children and you as parents can give them. That is God's truth and God's love. The world will not give that to them. On Sunday at the 1030 service, we had 22 kids in the nursery. I was teasing the 830 service. I said, you guys come to 830. The benefit is you get, you know, there's parking and there's, there's plenty of room. The 1030 service is packing out. And the classrooms are really packing out. 22 kids in the nursery. So what are we going to do, Pastor Jeff? It's like, I don't know. We're going to pray. And we're going to pray for more help. Because I want to see every one of those 22 as very, very precious and an opportunity for us to minister to. And there were those that stepped up and they helped out and we divided it up. And we're going to have to divide up the room into twos and threes and then the infants. But those are good problems. But what I ask for you guys is to pray for the children that come here and pray for those who are working with the children. We have those who are so faithful on Wednesdays and Sundays who've been ministering to the kids. But there's opportunity for you to get involved. And I know that he's not going to call all of us to be involved with the children's ministry, that he'll gift you in different ways. But I pray that that would be a primary priority and importance here in this ministry is the children. That's our future. And you see, the world comes along and isn't going to give them God's love and God's truth. They're going to be told, hey, you're just a product of a monkey. There's no God that created you and loves you and and has a plan for you and desires to bless you and, and give them the truth of God. We have opportunity to do that here. 
And there are kids that are bringing their friends and bringing their neighbors and, and grandparents are bringing their grandchildren. And, and we have opportunity to minister wonderful truths of God and His love to them each and every week. And it's of primary importance, so pray. And you pray how it is that you can help out. I don't know if next week it could be eight kids that are in there. But if the Lord lays it on your heart, I can help out once a month in helping the children and and blessing them so mom and dad can go in and get fed the Word of God once a month for an hour and 15 minutes. Or in the children's ministry. Or I can help out with worship. Listen, I got the worst voice in the world. But those kids are blessed to somebody to go in and just do worship with them and share with them the things of God. And our youth, how my heart aches for the youth and for our young people that they get established in God's Word and planted in God's Word because they're beautiful and they're precious to the Lord. So pray. And, and so we have VBS coming up in June. And I look on the list, and there's one person signed up for help. And I know that others will come along. I pray that they do. But what a wonderful thing for us to take a few hours for four days out of the summer and bless those children and teach them and have them bring their friends and hear about the gospel. So I hope that we have a proper perspective of what God is showing us. Moses was a beautiful child. That he sees our children as very, being very beautiful. And so verse 3, so when she could no longer hide him, she took an ark of bulrushes for him, dabbed it in asphalt and pitch, put the child in it, and laid it in reeds by the river's bank. And his sister stood afar off to know what would be done of him. And so here she, how hard this must have been for her. To build this little ark. And to put Moses in it and to float down the river And she's got to just trust God at this time. And we're going to see here that she is going to end up ministering to her own child in a minute. There is going to come a time in our lives, those of us who have children, that we're going to have to entrust them to the Lord when they begin their journey and they go out on their own. So parents, while the time that they're with you and under your roof Again, I want to encourage you in your responsibility of training them up in the ways of the Lord. Pray for your children. Talk to them about the things of God. Share with them the Word of God. Pray with them. Minister to them. And love them. Make sure that, that, that they're getting grounded in the things of God, that that's a priority in your home because there's so many distractions that can happen all around us that draw us away from those things. And all of a sudden they're gone and, and they weren't established in the things of God. It wasn't a priority. They, they, they struggle and then they go to college and professor of philosophy 101 in 15 minutes blows them out of the water and what they believe. So you take the time while you have them before they begin their journey and saying, Lord, help me. Do what is commanded of me in the responsibility of train them in the things of God and the ways of God. And so we see that he goes down the river, the Nile River, verse 5. Then the daughter of Pharaoh came down to the bathe at the river, and her maiden walked along the riverside. And when she saw the ark among the reeds, she sent her maid to get it. And when she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby wept. I think maybe an angel pinched Moses there to make him cry a little bit. So she had compassion on him and said, this is one of the Hebrew children. Then his sister, here comes Marion, comes popping out of the bushes there, said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call a nurse for you from the Hebrew woman and women, and that she may nurse the child for you? And so Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. So the maiden went and called the child's mother. Pretty smart little girl, isn't she? So she goes and gets Moses' mother and says, Hey, you want to nurse your son? And Pharaoh's daughter, verse 9, said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I'll give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. And the child grew, and she brought him to Moses' daughter, and he became her son. So she called his name Moses, saying, Because I drew him out of the water. Moses means being drawn out. He goes and gets mom. Mom says, I'll nurse. She gets paid for it. She's blessed. 
And notice here, he said, she said, take him away. She would have to bring him back. So she did more than just come over and nurse. She took him. And so for probably a couple years, she had opportunity to be with her son. A very precious time that would have been. She knew that the time was going to come to an end, that I got to give Moses back to Pharaoh's daughter. But this time that I have with him, I'm sure that she held him as much as she could, close to her, nursing him, just singing praise to him, sharing scripture with him. You think that she did that? I think that she did. Praying for him. Because we're going to see in the first 40 years, Moses was in the courtyard of Pharaoh, and he grew in all the wisdom and might of Egypt, is what the scripture says, but he rejected it. And I think that his mom had a lot to do with it. With her prayers and just that time that she had, just singing the praises of God, the word of God into his heart, even at a young age. It would be Paul that mentioned Timothy's mother and grandmother that prayed for him. And, and you've known the scripture from childhood. Timothy, very much a blessing. Helped make him the man that he was at that time. So parents, once again, the important thing here is remember the responsibilities that we have. Grandparents, you can play a very important role in that. In, in ministering to your kids and getting that seed of the word and, and, and the things of God into their hearts. Because the day is going to come when they're going to have to go on their own. And they're going to go out into Egypt, into the world. And you keep praying for them and keep ministering. It doesn't stop. But while you have them, each and every day is very precious, isn't it? And each and every day, remember the opportunity and the privilege that you have to minister to them. So, Father, we thank you for this time that we've had in your word and Lord, is the stories that we're familiar with very much, but Lord, we can make application and see the things here that we can apply in our lives. And so, Father, I pray that as we journey through the book of Exodus, that that would continue. And Lord, as we see that a nation's going to be brought out of Egypt, Lord, we tonight, we thank you that we've been brought out of the bondage of sin, the penalty of sin, the bondage of the enemy. And we come to the communion table tonight, and we remember that. We come to the communion table remembering what Jesus has done for us and allowing his body to be broken and his blood shed. So, Father, I pray that our hearts would be fixed on you as we do come. And, Lord, as we hold the elements and we partake of them, that we would just continue to worship.